Hello, everyone. This is Jim Kelly. Welcome back to Free Reads. It's been said that you should never meet an author whose work you admire. Now, I've never said that. My enjoyment of some stories has been colored by my impressions of their perpetrators, but those impressions have been mostly positive. I'm hoping that your experience has been the same. However, I know some have tolerated my autobiographical natterings with barely concealed impatience. If you are one of them, I apologize for what follows. Hit stop now, pull your headphones off, and check back at Free Reads in a couple of weeks. Okay. For the rest of you, this is part one of a two-part interview that I did with my friend John Kessel. In the summer of 2008, I was one of the guests of honor, Jonathan Lethem being the other, at ReaderCon, a convention of science fiction writers and readers in Burlington, Massachusetts. This was a huge honor, and I had a great time. ReaderCon is one of my favorite science fiction conventions. No, take that back. It is my favorite convention. The reason I love it is that it's really the only con that is all about the words. The people who read them mix effortlessly with the people who write them. Not only that, but this is the one convention where the short form contends on an equal basis with the novel. The panels are lively and unusual. The panelists ardent and articulate. This year's guests are my friends Elizabeth Hand and Greer Gilman. Put the dates on your calendar, July 9th through 12th. I'll be there for the first couple of days, but then I have another commitment, alas. Anyway, one of the traditions at ReaderCon is the Guest of Honor interview. So, here is the first of two parts with John Kessel, who knows me and my work better than anyone, asking the questions, and me, Jim Kelly, fighting sleep deprivation and social overload, trying to come up with answers. I've been looking forward to this. Oh no. Here. <laughs> so uh, this is an interview with the co-guest of honor, James Patrick Kelly. I'm John Kessel. Uh, welcome to Person to Person. Um, <laughs> I'm supposed to be so smoking at this point, one right? Of the thing, yeah. <laughs> one of the things I would like you to do is to turn your cell phones off or turn them to buzz or silent mode, please. And so we don't want to miss a single drop of wisdom that's going to fall from this guy's lips. Drip him. And so, uh, okay, so um, I, I give it some thought to what kinds of questions, and I, there are several different ways people do these things, and I'm not sure, you know, if my idea of what would be interesting is what you want to know, but 
too bad. Uh, so, so I'll ask some questions, but I'll, I'll hope to leave some space at the end where you can ask questions, and we'll see what, to what degree uh, uh, we hit all the things that you, you must need to know about James Patrick Kelly before we leave here. Okay? Are you, are you I'm ready. comfortable? Okay. Fire away, so, Gridley. So here's my first question, which is something I've actually thought about a lot, and this is it. Uh, I've always thought that you seemed entirely too normal to write science fiction. So what's your excuse? <laughs> and uh, that's a serious question. Well, I understand that. And so, right, um, so this is the point where I talk about my normal childhood, which I grew up in a family where my parents are still together. Matter of fact, they're going to be here a little bit later. I have, I'm the eldest of four brothers. Uh, my parents really never struggled for money. But I think what, and I'm glad they're not here at the moment to hear this, but I think what changed me in a profound way was growing up Catholic and then just totally trying to recover from that upbringing, religious upbringing, spiritual upbringing, philosophical upbringing, because the world did not turn out the way they promised me when I was a kid. Well, and, in your mind, what was the promise? Well, there were, the promise was that in some ways that I wouldn't have to be responsible for the world, that someone else was running things. Not that I think I'm responsible for running things, but I think we're all responsible for running things. And, and there is nobody at the steering wheel, and so unless we grab onto it, we're screwed. Last night, I was at the Meet the Pros party, and um, I had my sentence. And it's a sentence that actually I'm quite fond of. It's from a story called Love Story, which is all one word. And it's a story about aliens, uh, an alien society which comes into contact with, with humans. The uh, sentence read, reality is a decision and nobody here is making it. To me, that sort of was the problem, was that in the, in the Catholic worldview, we had made a decision that God was running things, and, and that was pretty uh, patently the wrong decision. So it's like really weird. I mean, nobody beat me up or anything, so it's a very kind of esoteric disaffection from the world, but there it is. I, Catholicism led me to expect things that didn't get delivered, and so I have an argument with the whole worldview of part of Western civilization. That I mean, the, the, the theistic view of the, the theistic world? world view, right. And so, am I an atheist? Yes. I don't think, I, I might have said one time I'm, oh, and I'm agnostic. I don't really know. But, you know, I know that I don't believe in, in a higher power, and so there it is. And so, so that so, means we're stuck, and we have to act as best we can. So what, what age did, did this come upon you? It came at an early age? No, 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 no. I was, well, okay, so um, here's, the, here's the payoff. What's the weird thing about me is I went to Catholic school, K through college. I, uh, I graduated from the University of Notre Dame, uh, and when I went to Notre Dame, you still had to go to mass every every. The first, you were expected to go to mass in my freshman year every day. Uh, by that time, I was long since done with the church, but hadn't had the the guts to tell mom and dad that I was I was done with the church because they are very devout. And so, sometime in high school, you know, when I'm taking theology and, and some poor blithering theology teacher's trying to explain the problem of evil not very well, I'm thinking, wait a minute, this is bullshit. You really are just like creating wheels and wheels and wheels and wheels to try to explain why the earth is the center of the universe when it obviously isn't. And that's part of it. But the other part of that is also sort of sexual. <laughs> I mean, uh, I mean, I know, but I mean, the whole Catholic thing is m m imbues one with a deep sense of guilt about sexuality, and as you well know, <laughs> I, I absolutely am mystified as what you're. What you're <laughs> okay, so 
women are alien creatures and how do I deal with that? I grew up in a family with three brothers and my mom was the only woman in the family and, and so I had to renegotiate my whole notion of, of what the other half of the human population was about sometime in college and still it's a continuing renegotiation, a continuing re-understanding. So those notions of how I relate to, to women as friends, as potential lovers, as intellectual equals, and all those different ways, it's sort of like, it's been a puzzlement to me, and you know, you see it, you see me working through it, I think, in some of my fiction. But if we had seen you at age 12, say, in a crowd of other school kids, you wouldn't have stood out in any way. You wouldn't like, you know, you weren't too tall. You weren't too big. No. You, you were, uh, you were, you were athletic, right? Were you not on sports teams? I, I was a runner in high school. I was a, a fairly good runner. I, so I was a captain of the track team in my and the cross country team in my my. How many people here were captain of a sports team in high school? <laughs> well, this I is, rest my case. Okay. Well, this is the thing. This. <laughs> test, <laughs> Yeah, I, the was, club? I was the president of the science club, all right? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is the thing, I mean, to go, this is a th game that you and I have played before with some of our workshop buddies. How many people here went to their prom? Their prom, one or the other of their proms. And one thing happens at a writer's workshop is that a much smaller fraction of the audience raises their hand. Did you go to your prom? I did. I went to both proms. And so, so normal, 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 and this is a problem. But the other thing that, that, that we, some game we sometimes play in workshop, how many people were only, only or eldest? And I think that is a defining moment, too, is that when you are sort of the alpha child in the tribe. The only, you're only the only real person in the universe is what it is. Well, there you go. There you go. There you go. I think that. But so there's no explanation for me. I, and when I hear stories of other people who have had much more interesting lives, I'm saying, well, gosh, you know, I was sort of set back as a science fiction writer in that I haven't got anything. You overcame this completely normal, normal childhood. I mean, <laughs> Wonder Bread, that's me. <laughs> so uh, what was the first encounter with science fiction? Well, I was a Stone Oz fan when I was a kid. I read all the books, Oz books. Um, I'm a particular fan of the L. Frank Baum books. The Ruth Plumley Thompson books are sort of not up to snuff. And anything, I think John R. Neal, the illustrator, also wrote a couple, not, not, the, not the true quill. So I would have to say that. And, and what I loved particularly about the Oz books was this sort of picaresque adventure that these uh, young heroines and heroes underwent. And one of the things I really liked about the Oz books was there was often women or girl, you know, protagonists, Dorothy and, and of course, the, the famous one, Ozma of Oz, where the protagonist starts out as Tip and turns out yeah. to be Ozma at the end. Whoa, is that a mind bender, you know? <laughs> Cross-gender uh, transformations in, you know, 1957 was pretty heavy stuff for me. Um, 1906, it was even weirder. Well, I know, I can imagine. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I've told the story in print before, but when I, when I was a kid, I went to visit my grandma, Kelly, who lived in St. Louis uh, one summer. Uh, my brother Steve and I went, and I got sick. I think I had an earache or something, and they, it was a really hot day, and they, were gonna, they had planned to go to the beach or the pool or something. So grandma took Steve off, and I couldn't go. She sat me down in the couch, and, and she had a very small television. Not that there was anything on television then, but nothing worth watching. She says, here are these books that your uncle used to read. And so I started pulling off the shelf, and one of them that I read was Judith Merrill's Year's Best Science Fiction. And, uh, which is, and the story that really stuck with me and, uh, is, uh, is a story by the great Cordwainer Smith called A Planet Called Sheol. And this is, a, this is a story about a prison planet where one of the prisoners at the start 
gets what's called the cap, which, which was some kind of electronic drug which sounded like really, really cool. I mean, I'm only, what, 12 or something like that, but nonetheless, you know, it's a pleasure thing. Oh, pleasure, that sounds like a good time. And so, but then when they get, that's, that's so they get transferred to this planet where they're being bombarded by gamma rays or something and they're mutating into different stuff. One guy's a giant foot. And, and this guy, our, our main character, has heads going off and which get cut off every so often. But in order to bear the pain of being on planet Cheol, they get an injection of something, which clearly must be heroin now that I reread it, but it, you know, at the time it was like some super-duper pleasure drug. And I'm sort of caught between the pleasure and the pain, that the dichotomy there between these kinds of, of extreme feelings that a 12-year-old is suddenly asked to experience had nothing to do with Oz, you know, had nothing to do with, uh, with, uh, with, uh, with uh, Tom Swift, who was another influence. I was dumped naked into the cold, clear ocean of science fiction and, like, and st- had to sw- desperately swim, and, and, but I also found it intrinsically enjoyable because it was so... It was so amazing. It was amazing. Yeah, that was, that's sort of my science fiction moment. Then, so then I go to the library... And I plow through every book in science fiction in the, in the YA area. Then I go into the adult section, you know. You can still tell in my library and, and where I grew up, books have little rocket ships on them. And I start pulling down books that are more and more adult. And, you know, sometimes my mom would say, uh, let me see that book. <laughs> I say, oh, no, it's got a rocket ship on it. It's all right. Oh, okay, that's fine. You know. <laughs> Don't worry, just rocket ships. It's not like a murder mystery where people gun each other down for sex or anything. So, okay, here's, here's the other thread I suppose we could pursue, and that is uh, the writing. Okay, when did you decide that you wanted to write? Was writing something you did as a boy? Uh, you know, what was your career goal? Did you have ambitions to be an astronaut or a, a fireman or what? It was hard to say that I, you know, I had ambitions as a kid, I'm like 12, 13, 14 years old. Although, actually, you know, I did write little stories. But see, I was the, we lived on a road where I was the, not only the eldest bro- of four brothers, but I was the eldest kid on the street. So I was hard up for company. Um, what story have you written that reflects this? Why? Would it be 10 to the 16th, the one? Which <laughs> one the Hugo Award? Which one the Hugo Award? So and that's and, one of the more autobiographical characters of your... That's life. absolutely autobiographical, except that kid lives in a different family than I lived in. Because, you know, this is a story about the fear of the Cuban Missile Crisis and the paranoia that we were feeling about that time. And in that story, a visitor from the future comes with a strange message for a young boy, not unlike Jim Kelly, but the young boy in that story, who is exactly me, however, that kid lives in a, in a family where the dad's always away, the mom's an alcoholic, he's the only son, and they built a, they built a bomb shelter, none of which apply to my, my growing up. But on the other hand, the, the layout of the house, the things that the kid would have had in his room, the attitudes he would have had. The, he makes a trip down to the corner store to buy comics, and, and that's me. Uh, that's my corner store, described directly from, from memory. So did, uh, did you, you know, you got older and were going to go to college. What did, what did you say? What did you want to be? There's actually a, a, a story that I can tell, but you could have read that if you had read the current issue of Asimov's. Because I wrote a column uh, just, that just appeared uh, called Storming the Academy. When I was a sophomore in high school, I, was really, I really loved my English class. I loved my English professor. I felt really validated to have been in the honors English class in my sophomore year. And so we went through the year, and we're reading all these uh, advanced texts, to me anyway, and, and 
And I love wrapping my mind around you know, Hawthorne and, and Shakespeare. And, and at the end of the, the, end of the year, the, the teacher, Mr. G, says, for your final uh, assignment, you're not going to write a paper, you write a short story. And this was like, whoa, this is so cool. I'm going to write a short story. And he said, you know, it's going to be about 10 pages, double space, double space. You double space these things? Why do you do that? I don't know. You know, and, and you can type it on onion skin paper because we know you can't type. And so the caraceable bond, the whole, oh, my God, some people don't understand this. Uh, <laughs> um, but before there were computers. Um, and so we're, I'm very, very jazzed about this. And he says, there's only one stipulation. You can't write a science fiction story. <laughs> And so I wrote this really, really sappy story, which in some ways presages my college experience, about a, a young boy who was somehow lured into the trap of smoking marijuana, and it, it drives him out of his gourd, and he commits suicide. And, 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 uh, and so I turned that in, and I got a C, and I, got, I was in regular world English in my junior year. And so anyway, I just wrote this column and I wrote myself a note, which I can't receive, my younger self. I said, God damn it, Jim, why didn't you write a goddamn science fiction story and take an F? You would have been a better person for it. Uh, but that's not the kind of people we are. I know, that's not, we're too polite. We are too polite. I mean, we're, cyberpunks would have written this. I know, Bruce would have said. <laughs> Be that as it may, although I did not have an auspicious start as a short story writer, that was sort of what I wanted to do. My dad wanted me to be an engineer, and as a matter of fact, when I went to the University of Notre Dame, I was enrolled as a math major, and I stayed a math major for about a semester, and I was taking math majors math, and two-thirds of the class was flunking. I mean, a good grade on a, on a test was 47, you know? That was like, on the curve, if the, if the smartest guy got a 60, then 47 was actually doing C work or so, and that's where I was. I hated it, and so I transferred and, and became an English major, much to the chagrin of my folks who had no ambitions for me whatsoever that involved anything in the arts. Um, I was to be a lawyer or an engineer or something like that, but there it was. So I want to uh, steer in a slightly different direction and talk about, um, well, I'll just put it to you this. Uh, I was thinking about this. Uh, I've read everything you've written, and um, it strikes me that at least one of the visions that people have of the great writer is is the is that great writers are obsessed with certain themes or notions yep. that run through all of their work. Okay, so uh, Philip K. Dick and reality breakdowns. Okay, and Hemingway and masculinity. Okay, and, and Heinlein and the competent man and libertarian virtues and Faulkner and the pa the burden of the past and you know Tiptree and death, suicide, fatal incompatibility of men and women. Okay, you know, yeah, I think we can all do this. Okay, so. <laughs> Well, I mean, do you have one? didn't he read his own introduction <laughs> in the program book? It says there that my obsession is death, and I would definitely, death and immortality, and I think that these are things that, that I am obsessed with without actually being able to think too hard about. I mean, and I don't think about them. I just find myself writing about it's them. It's not a conscious day. choice to, to vein, to, to mind this. No, and I, and I find it happening all the time that I'm writing about people who come back, people who stave off death somehow, people who live too long, or yeah. And and so, what's that about? Maybe it's about the fact that I was supposed to be immortal, like I was going to heaven, and it would be like Playland for eternity, and I'm not. 
planning on going there anymore, and so now I have to deal with that. But, but I, it's something I acknowledge, and when it comes up, I say, oh, here I go again, but I don't really think about it in any, you know, I haven't had the night sweats yet about that. Although, you know, I'm of an age where I have to think about, I can measure the rest of my career, insofar as I have a career, in decades rather than a lifetime, so that has occurred to me. Jonathan uh, mentioned today at, uh, at the panel, The Career of James Patrick Kelly, well, what should I be doing next? And we'll get to you tomorrow on this, pal. Yeah, and that thought has occurred to me. What should I be doing next? I mean, I don't have unlimited time, and I have more to say. And so, insofar as, as I've had those thoughts, and I have thought in an organized way about not being here anymore, but it isn't my plan to happen anytime soon. Oh, so, so Kessel sends me a birthday card. I think it was the last birthday card, and it says, there's a picture of a guy from the 50s. He's a, got the crew cut, and he's, he's brawny, and he's smiling. He says, Jim did everything right. He ate right. He exercised. And, you know, he lived a clean life. He opened it up, he said, and he still died. <laughs> and I thought, thanks, John. <laughs> John did everything right, too, and he still died. Yeah, so. right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, I, and I, I know I didn't sort of prepare you for this, although you might have suspected that I might. But I, I want to I push this a little bit, okay? Yeah, sure, right. Uh, I hope you don't mind. But, no. Uh, uh, so, you know, because what, what, I, I feel that... Uh, Often writers do have something that is is the you know the the itch that they have to scratch okay and and they don't always know what it is and frequently they don't know what it is but then sometimes it's brought to their attention or they do figure it out right and it's a crisis okay it's a problem for them at that point okay and and it seems to me there are two ways to deal with that and one is to try to undo it to sort of say okay now I'm going to write forget about death I'm going to write about something else or forget about masculinity I'm going to write about you know flower aging, okay? And, and, uh, uh, but the other to me seems to be, and I think the more, I don't know what you, well, I'll put this to you, is, a, is, to, is to take it, you know, and, and, and you got the splinter in your hand. Instead of trying to pull the splinter out of your hand, push it in all the way through, okay? Yeah. And I wondered if you'd ever thought about actively trying to, you know, write the great American science fiction novel about whatever it is that you think is, is you know, uh, driving. That's my prescription for the next thing for you to do. Thank you, the Great American Science Fiction Novel about that. Huh? Well, two, th two things I would say about that. And first of all is that, you know, uh, my many well-wishers may cringe when you say, hear me say this, but why do I have to write the novel about that? I mean, why can't I write the Great American Short Story about that? And you know what? That's what I've been after for a long time. And implicit in that, question which I, you know, you and I are cool on this, but implicit in that question which other people have asked is like, okay, you know, why are you wasting your time on short stories and when you could be writing the big novel? And, and it's a question I ask myself and, and then I, sometimes I shrug it off and sometimes I feel like, don't, I forgot to write a novel, you know? <laughs> and, but the other thing is that, I don't know, maybe it's too scary. Maybe it's too scary to write that book or maybe I'm not ready. So one of the things that happens about when I, whenever I start a project is that I, I really have to feel like, and this sounds, this isn't exactly right because I don't always swing for the fences, but I have to feel like when I'm writing a book, it's one of my, or writing a story, it's, it's one of the best things I've ever done. And so I'm not ready, I don't really have an idea and a character and a situation coalesce around that idea in such a way that I can proceed on the assumption that this is going to be one of the greatest 
James Patrick Kelly things I've ever done. Maybe I will never have that. And, but that's sort of my working method, is that in order to go forward, I have to really say, well, this will, they'll, have, they'll be throwing their keyboards out the windows when they read this one, because they'll know, they'll never, they'll never see anything like this again. And so, and you know, and when I get done with a story or get done with a, a novel, and I look at it and I read the reviews, I, you know, I'm able to place it in the hierarchy of, of what I've accomplished. But just in order to psych myself in to do the writing thing, I have to really feel like I'm, I'm, I'm writing something really important. Does that ever get in the way of the, doing the writing? Well, it does. And, and so, so having said that, I also don't always swing for the, uh, for the bleachers. Sometimes, you know, I'm, I'm happy to, you know, sometimes somebody sets me a goal. Uh, they, they want me to to write a, something short, they want me to write for an anthology, and I say, okay, I'm going to do that, because I don't always have to write something important, but I have to write something that I really believe in. I guess I should have framed it that way. That every project I write, I have to really believe in it. And because of that, I have let any number of friends and colleagues down who have asked me to do projects that for some theme anthology or something like that, and I say, yeah, yeah, I think I can do that. Let me see what happens. Somebody asked me here, we want you to do something for a project, and it's next, uh, it's in November of 2009. Sure, I say, sure, I'll do that, why not, you know? <laughs> and then time comes, I say, you know, I just haven't got anything. And a couple of times what's happened, as, as you know, I have been approached to do a project like that, and thought and thought and thought, the deadline went by, and then almost immediately when the book came out, or shortly after, it was impossible for me to do the thing, that's, that's when I started writing the story and published it elsewhere. And, with apologies to the people who engendered the idea. It strikes me that this method is, is a good one for you because uh, the work is so good and it's so, so um, you know, it's, it's always interesting. And I, I think that, you know, you should always, it's too hard to do this business if, to write anything you don't really want to write. It just, right. you, know, you might as well just be a bricklayer, okay? You know, uh, even bricklayers, I hope, get satisfaction. There's a wall, it's progress every day, it gets higher, you know? Okay, um, I guess the other thing, one other thing I wanted to talk about or ask you about was that uh, I think that I think of you as a writer who's, who's good at everything uh, that a writer is supposed to be able to do in a story. Say, okay, uh, you know, style, character, uh, I mean, if you want to divide it into those artificial things, uh, extrapolation, you know, yep. uh, um, and uh, it's sort of a chameleon ish quality, which I think actually stood in the way of people recognizing what a good writer you are for many years. Uh, people would say, oh, well, you know, they, they, it's like they, you know, they, 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 they like the girl who wears a lot of makeup or she has this tight dresses or whatever, but, but the regular, they, they all want to go out, they all want to go out with Ginger, okay, and Marianne, you know, gets uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and I, I think that uh, Jim is... The Marianne of science fiction, yeah. basically. <laughs> and, and uh, uh, you know, so I took, a think, I think the virtues of your, your work have been slow to dawn upon some people, mm -hmm. you know. So I guess my my question is, uh, it, is is there a, 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 is a man who can do everything? Is there something you can't do? Is there something you wish you could do that you can't do? Oh no, there's any number of people. Well, one of the reasons I think I've changed styles and I try different things on is because I am very interested in what other people can teach me. When I was a young writer, I would have liked to have had mentors. And in fact, I did have mentors. I went to Clarion, and I had some wonderful teachers there. And I have to say, Damon Knight and Kate Wilhelm were great to me. Damon Knight vetted my first uh, novel contract. I didn't have an agent. 
but I never had a close personal relationship with them after I went to Clarion. So in some ways, the mentors or the, my learning curve after Clarion was going to workshops, especially the Milford that we went to and then the Sycamore Hills thereafter. What was particularly valuable to me going to those was trying to parse out Carol Imschwiller's stories and Karen Fowler's stories and Jonathan Lethem's stories and John Kessel's stories and Ted Chang's stories and Kelly Link's stories and sometimes saying, wow, this is, this is really interesting stuff. I wonder if I could do that and trying my hand at it. And so there are any number of stories, some of which probably those who I'm trying to do an homage to don't actually recognize themselves in. But nonetheless, there are stories I think of as my Connie Willis stories, my Alex Jablikoff story, you know, and, and, you know, there's a lot of people who I sort of say, okay, this is a thing that he does very well, can I at least approach that? And so this has led at various times in my career to sort of crisis of conscience. Am I just like ripping people off or, or what am I doing here? And what I like to think of is that even though they haven't given me permission, I'm collaborating with people, except the ideas are all mine. Uh, the, but the sensibility is such that I try to, to understand and if not emulate, at least approach or appreciate in some of my work. And so, Do you feel this is a drawback in some way, to the fact that you can sort of assume the guise of all these different, you'd be a shapeshifter, uh, right. you know, do, is, that, is that an issue? Yeah, and you know, I got crucified for a story that I, I just, I probably made a mistake just admitting it here, but I got crucified for a story that I wrote called Undone, which is one of my favorite stories, and it was nominated for all the awards, and it was in three different years best, and in my foreword, Chile said, oh, so tell us something about this story for the Asimovs. I said, well, this is my homage to Court Wainer Smith and Alfred Bester. And so many reviews said, well, clearly this is just a ripoff of Court Wainer Smith and, and Alfred Bester. Had I not said that, I, I'm thinking people, lots of people wouldn't have gotten it and wouldn't they have gotten would have, that they connection. Would they would have seen it as what it is rather than as right. some... Yeah, I think that that's right. It did a disservice to the story. And so by, by announcing here that I, you know, I'm, I'm busy ripping my pals off, you know, they were probably saying, some people say, well, he's never had an original thought in his life. But, uh, um, and it's something I've asked myself. But on the other hand, one of the things I love about this field and one of the reasons I feel privileged to be part of it is that I'm able to have a conversation with living and dead writers, and the whole field is a kind of dialogue that's been going on for a long, long time. Now, for some people, that means that the dialogue is amongst people who don't talk to anyone else, and we're in a kind of ghetto, and, 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 and in fact, I do worry about that, that sometimes when we're deep in conversation with our, with our betters or the people who've come before us, that new readers coming into the field, picking up these stories, aren't going to get it. And this is the famous... Uh, Turkey City thing. These are card tricks in the dark. People are doing tricks that no reader can have access to because they don't know the history of the field. Having said that, though, I'm really very happy to be talking with Cordwainer Smith, in, even in my own limited way, and, and to be arguing with Tom Godwin, and you know, to be in dialogue with Jonathan and, and Kelly and, and with you. <laughs> information than you needed? 
Would you believe there's about 20 minutes to come? Listen to the rest next time. Bye. This is Jim Kelly. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll check back here again soon for more of Three Reads. <laughs>